This is Ben Davis and Carthy. We are here with the Music That Made Us podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the very first episode. Today, we're going to be discussing Oasis and What's the Story, Morning Glory, their seminal album that brought them landmark fame and made them a household name in America and many places all over the world. They were pretty well known already in England, the UK. But this album, as I said, brought them fame everywhere else. Before we get into everything else, uh, I want to open this up with one quick question. Carthy, my friend. Yes, sir. What did you think of the album? Did you like it or did you not like it? Uh, well, uh, having only been exposed to Oasis in the forms of their uh, singles released in the U.S., uh, you know, not being as big of a super fan as you are, I can say that I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I will say also that the more I listened to it, the, the more I enjoyed it. So it was it was layered. What, the, what you hear the first time is not what you hear the second time. It's not what you heard the, uh, the third time. So... I, I really enjoyed the album, and like I said, it's unusual for me to start to enjoy an album more as I listen to it. Very cool, very cool. This album was released on October the 2nd, uh, the great year of 1995. 1995, I was 14 years old, and my friend here was 19. When I was 14, I was playing basketball in, uh, I believe, eighth grade. What were you doing, my friend? I was a freshman at Chapel Hill. So this was definitely one of those albums that I know got played all over the place. I imagine so. That was probably played a lot at, uh, I guess, freshman parties. Uh, see, uh, radio. College radio? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I imagine so. Um, now, they weren't quite the college radio band of like an R.E.M., but they, uh, I bet you they got played everywhere, and I bet uh, Wonderwall got played at quite a few uh, college parties where there were lots of girls who were dancing to this song. Either that or Champagne Supernova, one or the other. <laughs> um, this album was recorded at uh, Rockville Studio. Now, you probably do not know that name, but if you were to see where it was, you're like, wait, I know that. That looks very familiar. And the reason that is, is because everyone has seen it now, because it was in the now very famous Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. And it was actually filmed there at the actual studio. And if you watch Return to Rockfield, the uh, little 30-minute doc that Noel does, uh, he actually goes, and he actually goes and sees the actual part of the, of the uh, studio that Queen was in, and that is not exactly where uh, they recorded. I was surprised to see how big Rockfield Studio is. It's not just uh, a farmhouse with four bedrooms and a little studio. Uh, it's uh, kind of like a, like a big campus. It was, it was very cool to see. Um, did you get a chance to look into anything like that? I did, I just looked, you know, looked into obviously where they had recorded, but uh, it was uh, the movie that I saw it in as well. You know that 
that gives you an idea of what these studios look like. Because if you watch anything on movie and TVs, it seems like it's a person standing in a, a, a room with a mic hanging from a ceiling, and then there's a guy back there with a bunch of buttons. And it's much more intricate than, than that. It's, it's not just quite as simple as two rooms and then you're done. Yeah, or like a, a sound booth. Right. Yeah, with uh, the headphones on. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, they were booked in uh, the studio for six weeks. And they managed to record this entire album in 12 to 15 days. Over the course of three weeks, that is. And they did it all in March of 95. Now you're probably asking yourself, wait, three weeks, 12 to 15 days, doesn't really, that's not, that's, that's 21 days. But uh, the reason is, is because as we know, Noel and Liam are brothers. Noel is the middle child. Liam is the baby of the family. They have an older brother named Paul well, Noel and Liam got into a fight, or a, as you British folks call it, a, a row, a brawl. Uh, and this was over Liam bringing a bunch of drunken hooligans back from a local pub while Noel was in the middle of producing trying to get the sound just right on a guitar chorus or whatever it is that uh, producers do. Right. Uh, because as I've watched things about this recording process and about making of this album, Liam was all about recording his vocals, getting them perfect in one take, two takes max, hitting the road and going to get drunk. Yes, read that a lot about uh, the uh, one-offs, sort of like uh, old Blue Eyes used to do when filming movies. One take. <laughs> yes. The rest of the band, who people might only know uh, Bonehead, who is uh, the other guitarist in the band, I don't remember his full name, it's Paul something. Um, he and Liam were actually schoolmates and they kind of started this band together and uh, side note we're lucky we ever ever got to hear an oasis song period because as they were schoolmates back whenever they were 14 they would cut through on their way home through the local football field and pick mushrooms which just happened to be magic mushrooms and get high <laughs> Now, the fact that they were able to distinguish which mushrooms to pick to eat, I'm thoroughly impressed with. You know, maybe maybe mycology was one of the uh, electives in British, you know, gain school. <laughs> um, yes, because uh, actually, uh, you know, without uh, Noel, I mean, it was the entire band, and they were called Rain. Yeah. And then when Noel, in, you know, when Noel joined, that's when they changed their name to Oasis. Uh, yeah. Noel came over from being a roadie from some other band and uh, said that they, they had a sound, but their songs weren't any good. <laughs> and said he could write them some better songs. Fair enough. So he came over and they, uh, like I said, they got into that fight. There was a cricket bat and 
as I've learned later on, air rifles or BB guns. Oh, wow, okay. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> you will shoot your eye out, kid. <laughs> uh, so Noel stormed off, as Noel likes to do, leaving Liam there holding the bag, and Liam too, prop, too drunk to care. At that time, yes. So apparently the whole band dispersed for a week. And uh, then they cooled off, came back, finished it in that second week. And uh, we have, what's the story, Morning Glory out of this. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that, you know, they were doing songs, uh, you know, roughly a song a day and getting it perfect the way they wanted it. (laughs) You... You don't have that today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have the. You barely had that back then. Uh, I, I heard that the band right before them in this studio was the Stone Roses, who were a great British band. Never really made it much here in America, but they were in that exact same studio for fourteen months. Wow! Doing the album before Oasis came in there for fourteen days. <laughs> They must have been feeling it evil because uh, to, if you go back and listen, you know, it's original recordings, you know, so it's not like the editing process it added layers, but it didn't add anything extra to it. There wasn't, you know, re-recordings later of vocals or of any type of the musical tracks. Uh, they actually just went in there and within a couple of takes could get it right, which is absolutely crazy. That's because they are musicians. That is true. A musician knows when it's right, and they know when to stop, I believe. I agree. Uh, some people will continue to press the, the button, uh, try to get that, eke out just a little bit more sound out of your voice, perhaps, overdub a little bit more, and perhaps ruin the entire take. True. Less is more a lot of times. It is. It really is. And for this album... Less was more, because this album really, uh, it doesn't have that much to it. It's just guitars and drums. Well, this was the first album, uh, you know, that they decided to add uh, some strings in, you know, because they did record Um, with the Symphony Orchestra, London Symphony Orchestra. Very good catch. So it does make it a more complex album, uh, but at the same time, they didn't stray too far away from... uh, you know, their basic chord and drum structure. Mm-hmm. They managed to release six singles off of this album. That's, uh, that's half the album, basically. If, uh, if you're looking at the CD, that is half the album. If you're looking at the vinyl, uh, there's an extra song on the vinyl right. called Bonehead's Bank Holiday, which uh, if you listen to the... Uh, the CD that was released in 2014, the remastered version. Sure. They throw it on there. It's a, it's a cute little ditty. Bonehead doesn't actually sing it. No one's up singing it. You can hear Bonehead at the beginning and the end. Drunk as can be because he had just had, he was so nervous. He couldn't do it. <laughs> this was their attempt to become more Beatles-esque and always throw like uh, one song to the other member, kind of like the Beatles always did that one song to Ringo every album. Sure. And uh, it, it did not work. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Was it on the, just the regular release scene? It was not. Uh, so these, out of these six singles, 
we have, uh, some might say, Roll With It, Morning Glory, Wonderwall, Don't Look Back in Anger, and Champagne Supernova. And that, that's, uh, that's a lot of songs. And each one of these songs had a music video with it. Yes. And they did a really good job of spreading out these songs. They released them over a course of 13 months. And that kept them in the public eye for a long time. And they also managed to reach this superstardom in America with music videos and all this stuff without what most people remember music videos from that are around our age or so being Total Request Live. Sure. There was no Carson Daly throwing out mm-hmm. new no. videos. No. You just watched the top 10 in the afternoon. Yeah. yeah. I think on Saturday or Sunday there was the top 20 or 25 countdown. Mm-hmm. Usually with some guy with big hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, back then I was just watching to see if a Weird Al video would come on to make me laugh. I don't know if Weird Al ever uh, did one of their songs. Uh, not one of their songs, no. Uh, that would have, Liam would have probably come over and tried to beat him up. He always has to have permission before he does the song. He does no song without the artist's consent. That didn't work so well with Coolio. Because uh, Coolio gave his consent, and then uh, when he heard it and people were making fun of him, then he like, he wanted to try to backtrack. Nah, that didn't work so well. Um, this album was much different than the album before it, uh, definitely, maybe. In one, more than one way, but this way, uh, the production value was far different. Uh, Definitely, maybe, was produced by a whole conglomeration of people. And then also Noel Gallagher and a guy named Owen Morris. So, if you get to this album, what's the story? Just... Noel and Owen Morris produce it. Now, if you don't know anything about British music uh, and producers, so to say, Owen Morris is a guy that had a, a little bit of producing behind him. He had produced uh, the Verve's uh, albums, I think almost all of them up until this point, but they hadn't hit it big. Uh, you might know them from... Bittersweet Symphony, that that song that came out, and I think uh, was just 1995. We're talking, I think that was a year later or two. Sure. Um, but he did not produce that one. That would have been unfair to the world if he'd produced Wonderwall and that song. <laughs> he would have too much money. That is true. <laughs> Do you believe just two guys producing this album made it better? Then, um, definitely, maybe, which was a, well, people think uh, more of a true rock album than everybody doing it. What do you think? Well, I think, um, I think the old adage, uh, too many chiefs, not enough Indians, can be applied sometimes in different situations. And I think you can listen to certain albums that are 100%, uh, I think, overproduced, like you had mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. So I think having just the two guys, you get a singularity of vision. You know, they're okay. This is the this is the direction we want to go. This is the sound we want to go with. So you don't have that uh, third party button in 
and possibly uh, steering something in a different direction. I mean, uh, you never know how any of those six songs that you just mentioned could have gone had there been a, a third head in there. Yeah. Trying to tell them which direction to take it or how loud something should be, how you should back off on something. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, like I said, less, less people, sometimes less is more. And so when you get the two people who have the most vested interest in it, they want it to sound the best it possibly can. So, uh, you know, again, they start getting it on vibe. They, they start agreeing with each other. Then, they're, again, they've got an idea of which way the album needs to go. Totally. And most people, if you ask, say, well, what do you think is the best album that band ever did? And people would generally say it's the first album because they've worked on those songs that are on that album for like five, six years sure. before they ever did it. And well, yes, people probably, what's the best Oasis album? And a lot of them will say, well, it's this album. And like you just said, too many, too many cooks in the kitchen. There you go. That's another way of putting and, it. And uh, I would say that uh, that's probably a good reason. And if you look back at definitely, maybe, there were not as many, um, just to the average fan, there's not as many top-tier songs on it as there are on this album. Right. I think Oasis fans have a, a you know a, a certain love for that album because of the rawness of it. You know, and it was when they were starting, but you know, all groups. Uh, tend to evolve, and so did they. So, uh, you know, they had a certain sound on the first one. They didn't necessarily abandon it, I wouldn't say, in the second one. Um, you can still hear sounds of it. It's just, uh, it's a more mature album in, in the way I hear it. You know, more layered, uh, more musically challenging, again, with some of the, the different things they added in. But it's still the raw sound. It's still them. Well, Mr. Morris is now retired. And he states that uh, he the royalties from this album, and particularly Wonderwall, is the reason he is retired and living in Costa Rica. Yes, and uh, there were a few of these singles and a few of these albums sold, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, that's right. Only uh, 22 million of this album sold so far. Uh, you know that that's something that's uh, I can't believe. You know, four times certified platinum in the U.S. Uh, you know, third best studio album of all time in the UK. So I don't think the Brothers Gallagher uh, or anyone associated with this album are hurting for money in any way. And it just recently hit one billion streams and downloads. There you go. That's another Wonder Wall that is. Yeah, that that's, is. That's another mouse. That's a lot. That's a lot of people clicking on a song to listen to it. Yes, sir. And also it is, and if you look at the top uh, 500 albums on Rolling Stone, uh, in 2012 it was uh, 378. And now it's bumped up quite a few to 157. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's again, as it, go, as it gets older, people appreciate it more. And so I, I experienced that as I was listening to it and getting to know it. It's a fine wine. It has aged. It has aged well. I mean, you, I don't. I think you could release Wonderwall or Champagne Supernova today, and they would do just as well. Mm. I don't think some of the other songs would have. I don't think the sound is there right now. Um, but Champagne and more. I mean, uh, a Wonderwall. They they go with some of kind of the ballady stuff that's going on right now. 
Yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. So you don't believe, other than those two songs, that the other things released today would do as well. So it's like, I think that Don't Look Back in Anger released pretty much any time in music history, other than probably the 50s, would do well. Yeah, that's another one. That's a distant third to me, though, just in terms of what you hear on the radio nowadays. Uh, a lot of really overproduced, synthy, poppy stuff. Um, it, you know, it, it probably do well on the rock stations. Um, there are, there's at least one left in, you know, the Piedmont. Um, but I just don't see the sounds of the other ones fitting into even the rock songs, the very few rock songs that are coming out nowadays. Uh, yeah, uh, Noel himself said that he, when he listened to this album again, which he said he had not done in probably 15 years, and this album is now 25 years old yeah. this year, uh, that there's nothing like it coming out for, <laughs> this is funny, that he actually said this, for the 14-year-old exactly. to hear and be like, man, what is that? Exactly my point. But... There is one band out there right now that I think is a true rock band that's putting out music on a pretty constant basis because they're a new band, and that is Greta Van Fleet from Michigan. Okay. They're, they're, they're a rock band. They're Fair an enough. American rock band, and they're putting out music, and uh, I, they don't get the, the play and the recognition they deserve right now. Sure. Uh, he, he doesn't know about them because he's over there in England, and they're over here, and Sure, but even when the even when the uh, you know one of the main staples of the band, obviously one of the two figureheads, the brothers Gallagher, uh, says there's nothing like that out right now. I don't think he's saying that in an arrogant way, like oh we were far superior. I think he's saying that literally in almost a lamenting way. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he laments the fact that there aren't rock, true rock bands. Um, we spoke about it off mic, you know, about Britpop and British rock right now. Um, you know, where like Imagine Dragons, we started talking about it. Well, they're sort of rocky, but they're mostly poppy if you get down to it. Um, you know, so name, name the bands coming out of Britain right now uh, that are true rock bands. Now, they've got a lot of singer-songwriters, don't get me wrong, uh, with... Uh, Sam Smith, uh, Capaldi, the um, the redheaded guy. Uh, oh, the crooner made so much money and so fast. Oh, I know you're talking about. He was on Game of Thrones episode. Yes, he was. Yeah. as one of the bards. Um, <clears throat> sorry, listeners, for the name escaping me. I know you're probably screaming his name out right now. Uh, but that seems to be the genre that's coming out. I don't hear a lot coming out of England other than those type of singers. Um, at least not the ones that are getting popular in the United States. Yeah. And then you have the other, again, top 40 stuff as just, you know, uh, kind of a mix of rap and pop, you know, that, that new thing. Uh, I guess the closest thing we have, in my opinion, would be Maroon 85, or Maroon 85, uh, Maroon 5. Uh, however... They have really transitioned from more of a rocky sound to definitely a poppy sound. 
That's where the mu that's where the money is. That's where the money is. So to go back, to, not to veer too far off our original subject, I was using that as a kind of a leeway. There is nothing like Oasis out right now. There's just nothing even no. coming close to it. So when you don't have that type of uh, music, I find that void unsettling. I find the you know there are some heavy metal bands out. Uh, you know, that you can find if you're lucky, but there's very few rock bands out, if any. Uh, again, that popped in my mind right now, off the top of my head. <laughs> and you know what we did not mention during this little side discussion? Liam and Noel both have solo bands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, Liam is a, he's a rock, he's a rock singer, and he has a rock band. Sure. Now, they do not reach the heights that Oasis reached. They have sure. never reached that height, and they never will. No, I never. Now, Noel, uh, he's got some sort of, I don't even know what to call it, the, the band he has. It's Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, and they are not high flying. They're like a mid-tier disco jive R&B soul it's the mishmash that everybody seems to be doing nowadays. The blending of music styles. Yeah, I don't... It, it's weird. It's just weird is what it is. Well, you know, musicians find themselves, you know. Is that what he did? He went and found himself. Okay. I mean, Maybe. he might have found himself in the middle of 12 different songs and decided to throw them all together. Mm -hmm. Throw them against the, you know, the wall. And he used sticks. to be a good songwriter. Now he's... A songwriter. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, you're a bigger, much bigger fan than me, so you're allowed to say it. I'm not. Um, well, back to this album and how they made it and how it made us. While they were recording this album, they had a change in drummers. Um, their original drummer, Tony McCarroll, drummed on the first album, which was a more of a True rock album. So and one song on this album. Exactly. He some played, might say. Some might say, which was the, the first single off of the album. Um, well, he, he got fired. American, sacked, British. <laughs> he was replaced by a guy named Alan White, who was apparently a cockney. And the rest of the band are Mancurian. Okay, that's how they refer to him. He's, sure. I think that's a, a, this is, this is a southern and a northern. Or yeah, it's different areas. areas of England, and yeah. it also has to do with a, a speech pattern. Mm -hmm. The Cockney is very hard to understand. They use yes, there is a they they use a way of speaking that uh, they use a lot of slang terms for things. So. Uh, the way it was described to me by an Englander is, uh, so your feet are called plates. Why are your feet called plates? Plates of meat, that's your feet. And that's how those little things come about. All right. So uh, when you're hearing them, they're using a lot of slang terms that mean something to them because they use it in their everyday language. However, uh, if you're not down with where the original poem or what, what the slang is, you're like, this is just a bunch of gibberish. I mean, it would be like, you know, was so go put something in the booth. What? Where, where do you want it? They're not. I mean, I don't understand. <laughs> so yes, that uh, I can see where that would that would be almost like a, a Leonard Skinner hiring a New York drummer. 
Oh, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that's kind of that, the, people don't realize it, but that is the equivalency of it. Well, they did have a, Leonard Skinner had a guy from California in the band. Man, Californians get along with everybody. <laughs> McCarroll, uh, who had been in the band with Liam for years, apparently uh, Noel did not like him from the get. Uh, he said he couldn't drum, said he didn't keep, couldn't keep tempo, and when they got to this album, he said, he's not going to be able to play these songs. We've got to get rid of him, and then Noel had his way. At some point in my life, I have heard Noel Gallagher say that he is the best drummer in the band. The only thing I've never heard him say is that he's the best singer in the band. <laughs> because I think he knows truly he cannot out-sing his brother. Right. But I think he thinks he's the best everything else. That's he is true. the Gene Simmons of Oasis. Ah, I got you, yes. The, the glue that holds the Oasis together. The, he's the he's the he's the god, so to say. <laughs> um, so they, they, he got fired, and uh, he was a little bit bitter about it, and he later sued them for uh, the proceeds that he would have gotten from the deal that he got kind of screwed out of for albums two through four, and uh, he made what the the English people referred to as, they call him the stupidest man in showbiz okay. <laughs> over there because he settled for 550,000 pounds and no royalties. And out of that, he had to pay his own court costs, which were 200,000 pounds. And then didn't realize that uh, it was going to go on to sell 22 million copies worldwide. Yes. Well, I'm just saying, you know, 500 pounds, I'm sure, is not, not the equivalent of what his percentage would have been from 22 million albums. Yeah. Just off of some might say that being the drummer, I believe he could have made a bit more than that over his lifetime. Yes. Oh, some people. Well, it happens. They've never, they're not really a drummer band, though. They're what you refer to they, as a guitar band. Oh, agreed. Uh, but I will say this uh, as a person who dabbled in drums uh, for a very long time, Alan White does a fantastic job in the background if you pay attention. That's the thing background. There's never a point on this album to me to where you're like, man, that drum is good. Or you're listening to it and you're like, man, the bass out of that drum is kicking. I don't think I ever said something like that, but like even um, in some of the more simpler songs, uh, the the drumming is much more complicated than you think. Now, uh, that's twofold in the sense of uh, technically, it's uh, more difficult than one thinks, but also it's seamless how it blends into the background, which is also an art, so that you're not overpowering the song. Um, that you're in the background and you're keeping kind of a rhythm. So uh, for me, uh, the drummer was actually one of the things I enjoyed listening to the most on the album. Yeah, there was a moment in Don't Look Back where there was a feel, and I'm like, man, that was good. I caught that. After, I guess this was probably the 20th time I'd listened to the album. Sure, yes. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, I just caught it that time. 
It's one of the things like it aged well. Like you, like like we said earlier, the more you listen to it, the the better the album. I really do believe the the better the album gets. Yep, they never seemed happy with, with. Uh, drummers at all until they got their uh, Ringo's son, who's Zach Starkey, and then that gave them that Beatles link that they always Wait, wanted. <laughs> yeah, they did. Uh, yeah. They they borrowed heavily from the Beatles. Yep. Um, they and they've not been ashamed. To, uh, they've been kind of unabashed when it came, when it comes to admitting. Yeah, we we took these, we took uh, these sayings that John Lennon had and then put them to music. You know, mm-hmm. we we might have borrowed a riff here or borrowed a riff there or, you know, something like that. So, um, so I, I you know, but that I think they came by that part, that part honestly. So oh yeah. Um. So, uh, we've gone over most of the album numbers. I think uh, what we uh, need to talk about is the album itself. I think we've given the audience mm-hmm. a very good idea of how important this album is, given uh, the uh, you know the effect it had on uh, American music and especially on Britpop at the time, um, and especially the impact it made worldwide in terms of being one of these albums that just sold out everywhere. Um, again, uh, we were talking about different things. Uh, the, uh, the, what is it? Nebworth. Am I saying that correctly? The stadium. Oh yes. Uh, you know, two night show, 250,000 plus people. So each night, 125,000 people. Uh, that's insane to perform in front of 125,000 people, two nights in a row. Uh, so if you don't think that these guys had a cultural impact or didn't have rabid fans like they do nowadays, then uh, you haven't done your homework yet, but that's the reason we're here. So uh, I think we should go into the questions now. What do you think? I concur. All right. Uh, We're going to go into some questions and then go over some of the songs here. And let's talk about some of these questions. Let's start off with probably just the easiest question to ask about albums. Uh, what do you think is the best track off of the off the album? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to go a typical answer on this one. Um, you and I talked about this off mic, and it's going to sound a little strange. But uh, my favorite song is actually more of a conglomerate. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, it wasn't necessarily uncommon for bands to uh, not have a pause between songs, you know, roll from one song into another. So, if I have to say my favorite song, I'm, I'm going to actually say my favorite part of the album. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of cheat a little bit. Um, it starts with uh, Morning Glory, goes into The Swamp 2, and then into Champagne Supernova. There was, there was no... Uh, break in between those last three songs. It just kind of rolls together. So I'm going to say my favorite part of the album is the the last three uh, songs um, in a row. Mm. I know I'm cheating a little bit by doing that, (laughs) but that is my favorite part of the album. And the more I listen to it, uh, you know, that is kind of like where I really like it. Uh, Morning Glory... um, you know, kind of starts off with an REM sound to it, more like a 90s rock song. Uh, the Swamp 2, or I think it's called just Unwritten or something like that, 
on some of the other albums, but on my version, it's called The Swamp. Um, it's just really a segue, and then it goes straight into Champagne Super Supernova. So, um, it just, I don't know, that, that part of the album is the part that sticks with me the most. For me, I have to go with, actually, actually I'm actually very ashamed to say I had never heard this song until we started prepping to do this. And uh, my favorite is She's Electric. I like it. Uh, I dig it a lot. It's just a fun song. Yes. It's, I think it's different than all the other songs on here. I agree. I agree with that. It does not sound the same as the other ones. It reminds me of a song off of the Monkey's Greatest Hits. And I say that because it reminds me of a song I would listen to while I'm in the kitchen cooking dinner, uh, having like a glass of wine or like a, like a mixed drink or something. Sure. Just here by myself, fixing dinner, waiting on the family to get home. And uh, that reminds me of my childhood. Okay. And that, uh, a lot of times whenever my mom would be in there cooking dinner, uh, the monkeys would be playing. Sure. And uh, usually because I was watching the TV show on MTV. Sure, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, their songs had that same kind of flow and that same kind of, uh, now I'm, I'm going to come out and say it, their lyrics were not as in-depth as this songs were. No, I, I actually, my notes from this song uh, were very similar to yours in the fact that I said I could hear early Beatles or early British rock. You know, kind of the, I don't want to call it candy rock, but it's just a little bit happier. Mm -hmm. It's not the punky, grungy, rocky um, that you would hear, let's say, on the previous album or the first song on the album. Um, and I actually made a little smiley face and wrote that this kind of sounds like the uh, the ending, the, the song that they would play at the end of a happy movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, a, like maybe a 90s uh, rom-com oh, or something. Yeah, that's yeah. the song that plays out, that just gives you that, that kind of like warm feeling. It's yeah. it's a different feeling song. Ben Stiller or Matthew McConaughey, Walk <laughs> Off with Cameron Diaz. <laughs> right, you know, at the yeah. very end, like they burst into the, you know, the, the uh, sanctuary. No, I object. <laughs> you know, it's one of those type things. So. Yeah. Well, this isn't, this goes a little bit along with it. The best written track, which I don't think is the best song, is probably Cast No Shadow. I think it has the most in-depth lyrics. Okay. And probably because it was written specifically for a guy going through a specific hard time and it was uh, Noel writing it for yet again apparently they have a lot to do with the Verve who I don't know I'm an American I don't know much about the Verve yeah I don't they know they made it pretty big in the UK but they had like one good album here and the lead singer was having a rough time with the band right so he wrote this song about the lead singer and uh, to this day Liam actually sings this song in almost all of his concerts and it's on I want to say his uh, recently released MTV Unplugged album. Oh, okay. 
and there's a few Oasis songs that are on that, and I didn't I didn't know because they're like deep cuts, and I'm like, man, that's a good song. And come to find out, it's an Oasis song. Sure. Um, I remember listening. To it. I do I do remember the lyrics. I, I I specifically wrote my notes that the the chorus and the callback are particularly nice. Um, however, the only thing I did write was that the string work was unnecessary. So mm. um, they could have gotten away with leaving the the orchestra out of that one, and I think it would have been a better song. Uh, what do you think is the uh, the worst song on here? Um, the worst song for me um, was "Hey Now." Um, mm. It just to me, I, I even wrote down average at best, <laughs> and then just to be a little pretty, I wrote down just not my cup of tea. Oh. Uh, so uh, again, just not my of all the songs and good lord, how many times have I listened to this album in the last couple of weeks? It just doesn't do. Hey now, does nothing for me. It, it just it's one of those I could fast forward through and not really feel like I missed a whole lot. To me. My least favorite is one that um, Noel says is not a particularly good song. Sure. It's uh, also a song that I know a lot of uh, music critics have said is not a good song. It's often left out of uh, the top five songs on the album. People say it should not have been released as a single. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, roll with it. Um, yeah, that was another one that I just really felt sounded like a, sounded a lot like a Beatles song. Catchy chorus, uh, you know, it's like if you mix the Beatles with a 90s rock sound and then threw a catchy chorus in there. That's, that's, that's the song that was released up against uh, Blur's Country House in gotcha. the, the Battle of Britpop. Right, back in the day. Yeah, and uh, Oasis lost but not really because they had already released the single and that was uh some might say which had already i think gone to number one perhaps over in england uh some might say hit number one in the u.s as well oh good gracious i didn't realize it was number one over here and that's a good song i like that song uh i particularly like the drumming on that song which is done by the guy they got rid of yes um, and then they put out Roll With It, which lost to Country House by Blur and uh, put them behind. And then Noel said some very, very naughty things about the lead singer for Blur and uh, the uh, uh, <clears throat> AIDS virus. Oh, oh goodness. Okay. Very, very yeah. bad things. That's some bad PR there. Yeah, it was not good. I believe they were heavily under the uh, influence of alcohol and uh, cocaine at the time, though. Don't know what you're talking about. The Gallagher brothers are known for their abstinence. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I've never seen them drink, and I believe I saw them on a dare commercial one time. I, I believe you're right. Yeah, and it was McGruff the Crime Dog too. Yeah, when we get to what a champagne supernova actually is, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a martini glass. For those of you who don't know, champagne supernova, obviously one of the more popular songs. Everybody knows the lyrics. Everybody sings it when they're drunk in the bar. Um, even though the lyrics really don't make a lot of sense um, if you listen to them. And uh, Noel's come back and even says uh, it means different things to him every time he listens to it. Depends on his mood. Uh, however, uh, a champagne supernova is a martini glass uh, with 
filled, the martini glass filled with champagne, uh, but uh, cocaine is used on the rim like you would like a margarita. Oh, dear Lord. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. Uh, so that's what a champagne supernova is. So, um, yeah, if you're going to use slang terms uh, for that uh, monstrosity in one of your songs, then, uh, yeah, I'm going to say that uh, you might have a little bit to do with drugs and alcohol. Pardon me while I go deep southern here. Oh, sweet lord. Oh, sweet lord. <laughs> yes. Okay, this is a redundant question. We've discussed it, but you just got to ask it when you're talking about it. Is this their best album of all time that they've done? Um, you know, we've talked about it, uh, how I'm not as big of a fan of them as you are. Uh, do you know all of their album names by chance? I do not. Okay, I'm, I'm going to run down the list here okay. real quick. And while I'm doing it, I'm going to tell you the worldwide sales of the album. Sure. Right, let's go over it. We have Definitely Maybe, sold 15 million worldwide. All right. And we've got What's the Story, which we're talking about, did 22.4 million worldwide. Then we got number three album, Be Here Now, went to 8 million worldwide. Big drop off. Yeah, but it was number one across the board. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, then we got Standing on the Shoulder of Giants, and it went down to 3 million worldwide. It didn't even crack, uh, man, it only went gold here in America. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, then we got something called Heathen Chemistry, which only went 4.5 million worldwide. Then we've got Don't Believe the Truth, 7 million worldwide. And then Dig Out Your Soul, which went 2.5 mil. Um, so you said you don't know uh, their albums that well. Do I, you I know don't. the first three, at least? I maybe? really do not know their so music. You just know this This one. was something you know that you said, uh, I want to do this, because you know, I'm an Oasis fan, and it's one of my favorite albums. So I said, let me dive in uh, you know, head first. Um, so this is really the only one that I know. So I don't feel qualified to That's rank right. it one way or the other. I can only tell you, uh, you know, the stuff again that we've looked up in terms of uh, considered the best album of the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the UK by several sources. Like, the, you know, the entire 90s, it was their best album. So uh, I would find it hard to believe that any of those other albums outside of a true Oasis fan who, you know, has their particular tastes, uh, maybe just the average listener like me, I'd have a hard time thinking that, you know, we, I would find a better album than this one. I think it is their best performed album. Okay. But I believe that Be Here Now is the best written album. Okay, fair enough. I think the songs on that next album were very well written, which is saying something because there's some very good written songs on this album. Fair enough, yeah, there, there are. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some uh, <laughs> you can just look, I mean, it takes, in the, it takes a genius, in my opinion, to write Live Forever, which was on the first album. Sure. Which is my favorite song that they've ever done. Which, if you just listen to it, and just listen to the words, it, it, it makes you think, man, I kind of feel better about myself a bit. <laughs> I do. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it. It was written as an opposition to you know Nirvana and you know kind of like uh, I hate myself, angry, uh, angst, yeah. teenagers. Yeah. But you know, yeah. If I'm going to 
just go off of yeah it was it's it's their best that they, they they never reached this this is their apex i mean you know again according to all the research it does seem like this one had the most commercial uh and praise they they made this they got the money and once they got the money it kind of went downhill I think that happens to a lot of people. I think some of the things that make music great are some of the situations that the bands are in or the writers are in. It's the life that they're experiencing. And uh, some artists, not all, but once they get the money, they stop experiencing life the way they used to. So their muse or whatever you want to call it is gone. Mm -hmm. So now they try to start writing songs the way they did about their current lifestyle and you know, nine times out of ten, it just comes off as pompous or whiny. You know, that's what uh, Paul Stanley has said numerous times. He says, I cannot write a song about how my life sucks because my life does not suck. See, that's, that, I think that is, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's uh, perfect because, again, when, you know, uh, paint painters, poets, you know, they're all artists in their own, own right. So, again, when your muse is depression, if your muse is heroin, if your muse is alcohol and cocaine, uh, you know, in a martini glass, whatever it is, <laughs> uh, then that's what drives your creativity. Um, and so once you change that paradigm, then some of that, it's not that you're not creative, it's not that you're not the same person, but it's the material you have to work with. It's, what, what are you trying to, what, what experience are you trying to write about? And so it can come off disingenuine, uh, disingenuine uh, when you're writing about, you know, losing this or losing that when everybody just saw you on the Tonight Show and your $5,000 suit and your $5,000 watch and talking about your $5,000 girlfriend, you know, whatever. Yep, exactly. Now, this is a little harder question to perhaps dig into and answer, but what made it their highest-selling album, and why was it so well-received throughout the world? I, I have, a again, as an outside listener, have a definitive answer, for me at least, Okay. Uh, because of the couple of songs that were released. They're just they're unbelievably good songs, but I think they're also... Uh, very universal. Um, they're genre bending. They're not necessarily uh, locked into a certain, you know, description. And so um, they're feel-good songs. You know, Wonderwall, uh, Champagne Supernova. You know, those are those are songs that you sing. Yes, they do have meaning to them. But those are songs that you know and can immediately relate to and immediately uh, start singing along to. So I think when you have those catchy hooks and Again, uh, they never really tried to hide anything in their lyrics. They, they speak in some metaphors, but their metaphors aren't that deep. <laughs> um, you, know what they're, you know what they're saying, you know what they're about. So I think when you write an album like that and people actually get it, uh, then that makes it different. So uh, some, some things can be a little bit too heavy. Some things can be a little bit too rappy, whatever you want to call it. You know, Whereas this just seems like a kind of a, a good blend of the different genres of music that were kind of going on at that time with some callbacks, like I said, with the, the Beatles sound and even some of the 
uh, west coast of the United States. Grunge sounds in there. Um, it's just a, it's a pretty complete album in terms of giving you what you want as a listener. Well, the, the grunge sound itself, the heaviest of it, was kind of coming to an end right it, around now. It was, but, uh, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, uh, all the Alice in Chains, all those guys here were still really, really popular. Didn't, Kurt was, he didn't have much time left right about I now. Think, I think it was actually 94 that he might have killed himself. Oh, so he was already gone. So I think, I almost think so, because I think I was in high school when I heard about him killing himself. And I think it was my senior year, which would have been 93, 94. Um, but Pearl Jam, I remember being at UNC and uh, being at a radio store at midnight to buy their new album. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so there was some fever about rock and roll albums back then. And so when you come out with an album like they did... Uh, you know, it had rock, it had all these different sounds, and then again, like I said, you have these two really uh, monster hits, at least that I remember, in the two songs that you sing, um, that get played everywhere, all the time. So, I think um, a couple of songs get you in the door, the rest of the songs are what keep you. So, mm, I, think they, I, I think they enticed people with Wonderwall, or maybe Champagne Supernova, and they're like, hey, what's this band about? And then once they bought the album, they're like, oh, wow, they're, they got, they're not just a one-trick pony. Um, yeah. So I think that drove a lot of their sales. Yeah, they came in at the, the right time, I believe. 100%. I, I don't think they would have made it in the 80s. No, too, too different of a sound for the 80s. Uh, and, uh, and in the 90s, later, I don't, again, I think... Sounds I think, were changing right about this time. You know, time. music's constantly evolving. It's a constant ebb and flow, yeah. Right, it's, so they hit, I mean, they just were in the vibe, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like one hit wonders. You know, they yep. hit the vibe, they hit their stride. The difference is Oasis was able to adapt. You know, they were musically gifted yes. enough to adapt with the times and change their sound as, as uh, the, you know, the music landscape changed. They just nailed this particular landscape. I, I watched... Uh several documentaries on the band and uh, making of the album. So many of the songs that were on later albums, the next album, two albums later, were written at this studio after the band, after this album was recorded. Sure. So a lot of the reason they continued to make it is actually related to this album. I, I, I would definitely, again, I think they were in the zone. Again, when, you, when you're recording a song a day, like you had mentioned earlier, that doesn't happen, man. Like bands aren't in that tune. Bands, you know, have to get things perfected. But when you can record a song in a day, and, and um, again, hate to use the term again, but in the zone to the point where you can get a song down like that in one day, that like, that shows something about the quality of the musicians um, and the drive that they had at this particular time, even with the kerfuffle. Uh, it shows the drive uh, that this band had to get this album made. So I stated earlier that uh, Rolling Stone put it at like the 120s of their rating system, and it's one of the uh, thousand and one albums to hear before you die. Um, do you feel like you could rank or rate this album on your rating system? 
Not mine particularly, because I have uh, a ranking system based on genres. I don't believe oh. I don't believe any song is the greatest song ever, uh, because that would be to diminish a, a genre of music. I think there's maybe what I consider the top five metal songs, maybe what I consider top five rock songs, what I consider top five rap songs. So to put an album like this, I, I don't like it when you try to compare apples and oranges. It's almost, you know, it's like the old, which is better, uh, LeBron or, or uh, Michael Jordan debate. Mm. Well, I don't think you can compare them because the league is so much different. Mm. Um, uh, so, you know, they're great in their own right. Um, as far as 90s bands go, you know, especially after doing my research and listening to the music, I can say that uh, without a doubt, I believe Wonderwall and Champagne Supernova to be two of the best rock songs. I'm not going to say hard rock. I'm going to use the word rock um, of the that decade without even blinking. So uh, the UK and lots of uh, rock and roll magazines and organizations that are there have said this is the album of the 90s. Mm -hmm. you, you concur? Um, I think it has to be considered one of them based <laughs> off of record sales, whether I was a fan or not. You can't sell that many albums. You can't sell out 125,000 seats two nights in a row. You can't do some of the things that they did and not have that Kind of, I don't want to say bestowed upon you uh, because you earned it. Nothing was bestowed. You earned mm -hmm. that uh, that title. So I think they earned the right to be mentioned in uh, those words. Yes. So in the first album, Liam sung every song, and on this one there was some disagreement. They had a little give and take about uh, the singing. Yeah, Noel sang the, his first song on this song. Yep. He wanted to sing two. He wanted to sing Wonderwall and Don't Look Back in Anger, but Liam fought and got Wonderwall. Do you believe this album would have been better had Liam sung all the songs like he's like he would have because he is the lead singer of the band? Well, I don't think necessarily that Noel's voice took away from the song that he did sing. And I'm not sure that Liam uh, would have just killed it. Um, you know, Don't Look Back in Anger being the first with Noel as the lead. Um, I'm not sure if Liam sings that song. It does that much better because I can only hear So Sally Can Wait in one tone. I can only hear it in one voice. So that's just me. I can't hear the other voice singing that. Mm -hmm. um, so my opinion is going to be that, you know, when you look back in history, uh, sometimes if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, I don't believe I've ever heard Liam do that song on any of his solo projects, at least not a recording of it that I've heard. Right. But we've heard Noel do some Liam songs. Sure. Particularly on the, uh, the infamous uh, MTV Unplugged. Right. Where uh, Liam said he had a sore throat and couldn't do it. Turned out he was just too drunk. Sure. <laughs> and uh, Noel said he couldn't, he couldn't carry a tune. So, 
Um, so we've discussed uh, quite a lot here. Um, and we talked about the drummers. Yeah, the drummers, uh, again, I, I think the drummer is one of the, uh, I, I, without hearing the first one, I can't really say much. I will only say that uh, the drumming is very confident and borderline, in my opinion, as again, someone who used to dabble in the drums, and I do listen to drummers on rock albums specifically. Uh, yes, I think the drumming was fantastic. Well, this is my last question. All right. Why? Why are the drummers so indispensable to bands? Um, I think to good ones, they're not. Um, I mean, look at uh, like Def Leppard. You know, they, 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 that guy lost an arm. They kept him and rigged something up for his feet. Mm -hmm. Because drummers, the good ones, you know, the bassist is keying off of him. The mm -hmm. guitars are keying off of the, you know, the vocalist is keying, everybody's keying off of somebody down to the drums. So you can't teach rhythm. That's just one thing you cannot teach. Um, I have a good friend that's a drummer. He even said, he's excellent, he's, he's really good, but he even says he can't help it. Sometimes he speeds up. So, uh, you know, a metronome, a little thing. Yes. Just trying to keep him in, just trying to rein him in because the drummers get excited. <laughs> uh, so with the blending, uh, like, like, like I said earlier, he blends into the song seamlessly. It's just so steady uh, that I think him as a drummer uh, needs the recognition. Um, Pantera, Vinnie Paul, uh, uh, John Bottom, Led Zeppelin. Uh, I mean, just, uh, uh, what's his name? Lee from Motley Crue. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, or not Tommy, Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee, sorry, not the actor. Well, Keith Moon. Um, just all these drummers can make a huge uh, difference. Uh, Lars Erwich from mm -hmm. Metallica. I'm sorry, like, you know, most people didn't even know double bass was a thing until one came out. Yeah. Uh, so drummers can do it um, if they stay in background and they drive it through and then make good decisions. Or drummers can ruin things because they can either overdo it or underdo it. So, um, again, I think on this one, they, they I, I, I agree, at least from just what I've heard, that they made a good decision in hiring the new guy. All right. Well, before I get to uh, the business point and all of our uh, sites and emails, do you have any uh, final words? Um, only that uh, if you are a purveyor of music and uh, you want to go back in time and hear some pretty cool rock songs that you might not have heard, like me, again, as an average listener, I am a metalhead and a, a gangster rap head from back in that day. So that's when my time will be able to shine on the podcast. Uh, so as someone new to this album, I believe anyone uh, around uh, me and Ben Davis's age uh, would benefit from listening to it uh, because it will bring you back, number one. Uh, and then number two, bye-bye uh, on the album. You get some really, really cool songs that you are going to sing to in the car, whether you like it or not. Oh, you can't help but sing along to some of these songs because it takes you back to that time in life where you didn't have a care in the world, usually. Yep. Yeah, it's good times. So, yet again, we are the music that made us. This is a podcast brought to you by Ben Davis and Carthy. You can get in touch with us at our email 
the music that made us at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ben Davis and Carthy. We're also also on Instagram. That's at the dot music dot that dot made us. And we're also on Twitter. And that's just at the music that made us. I believe that's all of the social medias because we're not going to be on TikTok because we're too old. <laughs> yes, uh, no one wants to see me or Ben Davis dance or try to do a prank. So we're going to leave that one to the youngsters. Yeah, we're also using using the hashtags, uh, hashtag the music that made us and hashtag TMTMU. So uh, please use that anytime you're contacting us and tune in next week as we bring you another piece of music. This time it's going to be a bit more alternative. So thank you for tuning in. See you next week.